Greetings, geeks, and welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files. This is the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former wizard staffers and those comic book professionals who appeared in the pages of the Guide to Comics. This time around, we are thrilled to have joining us a man who was pivotal in shaping the 90s comic book scene as the co-founder, publisher, Malibu Comics, who became a founding father of the Ultraverse line that so many of you have said you want to see a revival of. These days, he is the very entertaining host of the Geek View Tavern on YouTube. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to let him present himself. Dave Ulbrich. Oh, <laughs> All right. And of course, joining me tonight is the other half of our interview team, the man who set up this whole shindig from the Superhero Satellite blog and an esteemed member of the Superblog Team Up Council of Comic Book Elders. Elders. It is <laughs> Chris Bailey, a.k.a. at Charlton underscore hero. How's it going, Chris? Hey, good, man. This is a joint venture because we're actually doing a little uh, get together for the super blog team up. If you don't know what that is, it's a contingent of bloggers or podcasters around the internet who get together probably four times a year. We try to and bang out a um, one theme. So this one is going to be Road to Revolution. It's talking about the birth of Image Comics, and that couldn't happen without our guest today, Mr. Dave Ulbrich, right there. So thank you for joining us. It probably could have happened without me, but it would have looked significantly different for sure. <laughs> Would have, it would have. It yeah. wouldn't have been as stylish without the That's nice. So we like to, we like to start obviously the wizard files with a little bit about your background. So we like to Ooh. peel back the layers. So tell us, Dave, a little bit about your comic book origin. Well, I grew up on a farm five miles from a tiny town of five hundred in Minnesota. And there was a tiny store that was next to the school with a wooden rack that carried comics. And I quickly became a Marvel zombie pulling comics off of that rack. But the reason I gravitated toward the Marvel comics when I saw the big rack of comics was because of the Marvel superheroes animation, right? When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all that stuff, right? So I saw that as a kid and just lit my brain up, right? Yeah, so I I started up with Marvels and really never looked back. My first comic was Daredevil Annual Number 2. Can't really do better than that, I don't think. And then... Ultimately, my favorite comic books as I sort of got older was the original run of Master of Kung Fu and Marv and Gene Cohen's Tomb of Dracula. That kept me reading comics, but I probably should have graduated to cars and girls and those <laughs> kinds of things. Who needs girls when you got Shang-Chi? Yeah, well, I don't really have an answer for that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to my first Comic-Con in Chicago in 1976, where I met Stan Lee and Marv Wolfman and Don McGregor. And I just recently sold, my wife sold on eBay my program that had Stan's autograph in it. So, wow, that's so wow. fun. And what's weird is I went to that Comic-Con in 76. I didn't see my first comic shop till 1978, which kind of says both where I was geographically and where the industry was in terms of its development at that point. That's why we're so interested to hear this history from you, because this is the era before we really jumped in in like, you know, the 80s and 90s as we were getting hardcore into comics. You were there, you know, really experiencing those early days of fandom. But as a part of that, you know, we're talking about your time as a fan, but your early career as a professional, you were getting involved with Fantagraphics and the Comics Journal. Yep. This is something that is cited by, you know, comic book fans of that era of the 70s and and going forward, something that was really seminal in kind of breaking down the walls and helping people understand like the business and all that. So how would you describe the style and reach of comic book journalism at that time as you were getting involved in the 80s as compared to how it evolved 
in the 90s with the launch of Wizard Magazine. Yeah, that that's a real hard one to put your finger on, especially because the Comics Journal was such a unique publication. Absolutely. Reading the Comics Journal was very different than reading virtually anything else that was available. And there was a lot of fan magazines back then. The Comic Reader, the Comics Buyer's yeah. Guide was up and running. So there was a lot of comics journalism but i studied journalism at the university of wisconsin and i I was the editor of the school magazine for four semesters the comics journal was just a very different duck than anything else that was on the stands and i did wasn't really didn't get really get a chance to get involved with it that was gary garros baby so my personal entire involvement with it was this a fan as a reader and having it expand my ideas about comic criticism and all of those kinds of things. And then as the the marketing sales and distribution person. Now, was it a pretty popular magazine already by that point? So with your job, getting it out there and promoting and doing those things, like what was the main draw of the comics journal? Would you say for most of the people that were already reading it or that you were trying to push and say, you want to read this because. Right. right. Well, the interesting thing about the comics journal was it was very much an industry publication, right? right. I mean, there were fans, but the fans that were reading were were aspiring pros, right? There was not much fan appeal inside the pages of the comics journal. Like (laughs) they put Swamp Thing on the cover because it was popular at the time, but then they'd do interviews with Alan Moore and Steve Bissett and John Tottleman that were super academic and and maybe a little investigative, but the interviews didn't tend to be as investigative as the news. And then there's all this criticism in it. So there wasn't a lot of fluffy, yeah, rah, rah comic stuff in there. It definitely caused some ruffled feathers. The comics journal was not necessarily popular and it never sold very well. Oh, it was really, it was super influential, yeah. but it never sold very well. So it was for those diehards that wanted, That's yeah, right. like you say, they were all trying to get an inside track. And- Even the ones that hated it, read it. That's the important <laughs> thing to remember, right? Like if you were in the comics business, you were at least looking at and exposing yourself to the comics journal, even if you were one of its detractors. Yeah. So the comics journal really burned a lot of creators to the ground. So, I mean, you had people who, you know, refused to be interviewed by those other magazines or publications by proxy were, you know, kicked to the curb because, you know, we, we're not going to have this type of journalism on us. I know you had a pretty funny story about uh, your time at Amazing Heroes with Walter Simonson, where you had these sort of. You know, I, was, I was just going to say, do you want to yeah. hear the Walter Simonson <laughs> yeah, story? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So here's the, here's the Walter Simonson story. And t- I am good friends with Walter to this day. And, and he was part of Bravura and we published his stuff and he participated in the Ultraverse and all that stuff. So Walter and I are good. But Gary and Kim wanted very much to get Walter to go on the record or have some involvement with Amazing Heroes. And Walter was like, there was a really hard line. I don't care if Amazing Heroes isn't the comics journal. It's put out by the same guys that put out the comics journal. I don't want to be involved in that. Right. So they sent me the new guy to try to <laughs> seduce Walter into agreeing to an interview or agreeing to some coverage by me because I wasn't Gary or Kim hoping that Walter would fall for it. Right. So I went to a panel at a, at a New York show and I approached Walter. I said, can we talk? And he goes, who are you with? And I told him and he goes, when it's over, we'll talk. I said, great. I thought I was in, right? Trust me, I wasn't. So um, <laughs> w- Walter takes me aside after the panel. He goes, come here. I want, you know, let, we need to talk privately. I said, okay. We went into a stairwell in this hotel, right? So there's nobody else around. It was just me and Walter Simonson in this, the, the stairwells you see in the movies, right? Just steel and concrete and nothing else, right? As me and Walter sat, and we sat there probably for 40 minutes. 
And he wow. just explained how he felt about the comics journal. And it wasn't personal. It wasn't about me. And it wasn't about being angry and having a grudge. It was just that he didn't want his name attached to the publications of Fanographics for his own reasons. Right. I've been a, a friend and acquaintance of Walter Simonson since that day in 19, that would have been 1985. And wow. you said he didn't have anything against Amazing Heroes, but in your attempt to say, well, it's for Amazing Heroes, how would you present that as a different publication than the Comics Journal? What was Amazing Heroes in comparison? Well, Amazing Heroes was just, we reprinted press releases and we created content with interviews and retrospectives and comics reviews. I mean, we did review comics, but it was yeah. a very, very different approach. It was like, hey, Chris, hey, Adam, maybe you'd like to read this. Not any of the other nonsense that would go on, especially the harsh criticisms that would often come from the comics journal. Do you have any memorable stories of some some of your favorite creators that you were involved with with Amazing Heroes? Like, what are some that stick out to you? Well, the big one is always Doug Wildey, because when Kamiko oh, okay. relaunched Johnny Quest, I got a chance to go and interview Doug Wildey. And usually I was the one giving out assignments when it came time for Johnny Quest, because I'm just the giantest Johnny Quest fan ever. I don't think oh, you yeah, see Johnny it, Quest. but can you see the Johnny Quest painting over my shoulder over there in the corner? That's the original artwork from that issue of Amazing Heroes. Doug gave it to me. Wow. Very nice, cool. For a nice job interviewing him, right? So I was a giant Johnny Quest fan. Doug only lived like three exits down from the Office for Amazing Heroes. And I was, there's no way I was assigning that to somebody else. <laughs> Even though it meant like overtime and a whole bunch of extra work I would have to do, there's no way I was going to let anybody else do that job. And so I went down, visited him with him three times, and I put together a pretty good piece. So that, that was really fun. When the journal did their Swamp Thing issue, I got a chance to go out to have Chinese food with most of the staff of the journal, plus Alan Moore, John Toddleman, and Steve Bissett. And that was really fun. Yeah, that Holy was cow. I know Adam likes to ask this question for a former Wizard staffer. So I'll ask about Amazing Heroes because he always asks, when you left, like, say, for example, Amazing Heroes, did you take anything with you? Like, was there any, like, merchandise, paraphernalia, or anything that you had that you, you took with you? Because I worked there and we published Love and Rockets. I've got the oh. cover to Mechanics number one by Jaime Hernandez. And I literally bought it from him before he could take it home. Like, he sent it in. We did all the... <laughs> prep work on it and it was sitting there and i called up Jaime. i said Jaime, can i buy this he goes um can i get 150 bucks for it and the pay rate at fanographics is so bad i go can i pay in three installments and he said yes <laughs> now it's got to be worth you know ten thousand yeah. now i heard you had a pay upgrade because you were managing a dominoes was that right your research is pretty good when, I, when we moved to california my wife and i wanted to live not in Casa de Fanographics, where all the rest of the staff lived. We wanted to have our own place. She got pregnant, and we were a real young couple, and there were, the money was awful. Even before she got pregnant, when we got to California, in order for us to pay the rent, I had to work at Fanographics during the day and deliver pizzas at night. And that's how the owner of the Domino's Pizza found me and sort of went, hey, what are you doing here with all these kids? I got to make ends meet, lady. She goes, well, you seem to be like you're on the ball. You want to run one of my stores? And I was like, um, okay, what are you offering? Big pay, Bob, you know, health insurance, get the baby born with health. Hell yes. I'm like, you know what? Perhaps I'll do that for a while. Definitely. <laughs> and then I never actually got my own store. I ended up managing like eight stores. Whoa. Wow. Every night I would just go out, drive around Southern California from one Domino's to the next, making sure everything oh. kind of was okay. Well, now, nice. Chris, you you were you know asking Dave here about if he brought anything with him on his departure. I think we need to just kind of figure out 
What led then to your decision to leave Fantagraphics and then this founding of what would become Malibu Comics, like creating this concept of Malibu Comics? Because it seems to be like, wasn't there a big, like independent kind of implosion of 80s, like the black and white comics and stuff towards the end of the decade? Malibu seems like it maybe would have been a risky venture based on the landscape at that time. So what was going through you your head? You are 100% correct. <laughs> When, when we started Malibu, we started at a very, very bad time. We basically went, started it right into the teeth of the black and white bust, right? Oh, so no. So basically, Turtle starts the boom. It lasts for a few years. And then big bust. I mean, I, we even lost some stores in that bust, right? But we lost a ton of low-rent publishers. And Malibu started right as everybody else was folding. So it was it was a really weird time looking back on it with 2020 hindsight, right? The thing that I came away with is it's never going to be a good time to start a comic book company. Timing that stuff is almost impossible. And if you wait till it's a good time, you're already too late, right? Like yeah, if you can see that, if you can read the tea leaves and realize it's a good time, your setup time is going to put you behind the eight ball of everybody who started when it was a bad time. Was there something you felt like you had in your pocket? Was there something in your plan? Like, I'm going to start publishing comics. We're going to create this whole publishing unit. Like, what was it you have that said, we could probably have some success because of this? Well, my background included working at a comic shop. Working in Fantagraphics, not just as an editorial guy on Amazing Heroes, but I also was in charge of sales and distribution. So I knew all the distributors. I knew what had to be done. I knew how all that stuff worked. Then I went to work at Sunrise Distribution in Los Angeles. So I saw that portion of the business in person, hands-on, giving boxes of books to retailers. You know, they would come by the warehouse. We'd load them up. And then we always had, we called extras, like so in those days, you'd have your orders and there wasn't like a final order cutoff. Right. So what Su Sunrise always had was extras. And so we, the company would kind of look and go, okay, the, we think the retailers underordered on this. And then we'd have these shelves. So they'd come and pick up the boxes of stuff they'd ordered. And then they'd start shopping for stuff that they thought they underordered on. And I'd have to process all those orders. Um, so that kind of experience got me the chance to see the whole picture, right? I could right. see the whole playing field and I thought I could do it better. Frankly, I thought the competition was weak. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And, and, I, and I think you continued to prove that when you got the supposed big boys landed on your doorstep and the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the, the troubles they had after they departed you guys. So it was a long stretch from when we incorporated in 1986 and image came along in 1991. Staying alive during those five years was a real challenge for sure. But I always thought basically let creators create. I never understood guys like Mark Alessi, right? At, at CrossGen, right? He took all of his high school notebooks of all the characters he created when he was a numbskull high school kid and shoved them at comic professionals and said, here, make something out of this. That never interested me. Like I had, sure, I created characters when I was in high school. Sure. They were my characters. I didn't want to shove them down somebody else's throat. Anyway, the point is, I wanted to let creators create. And I think part of that came from my experience at, at Fantagraphics, right? My job as a publisher was to sell as many copies as possible. And that was good for the creators because they were I had a royalty structure and it was good for the company. So we had some rules in hindsight. The big ones were pick your creators and your titles carefully. Stick very close to your strict budget. Only make promises you can keep and stay on schedule. You know what's cool about that? 
I was right. Almost all of our competitors couldn't even keep up with those minuscule hurdles. But we we couldn't pay a lot. But creators learned really quickly. We always paid what we said we were going to pay. Nice. So tell me a little bit about the name. So Malibu Comics, I I heard a few rumors. So do you want to say, do you want to tell me your version? I can correct you or do you want me to just launch into this? No, I think so. Is there truth that you you named it alphabetically as in Malibu to offset Marvel? So M-A-L, Mal. That was certainly one of the benefits for sure. That was was when I went to pitch it as a name to the people who had to decide that the name was okay. That was definitely one of the reasons I chose it. Yeah. And the other thing was to designate it almost like a, you know, a West Coast operation to, you know, to make sure people knew that this was West Coast and not, you know, everything that was going on in the East. So yep. what, what is the secret origin behind the name? Well, I had, you know, name after name after name written down on, you know, various sheets of paper about what I wanted to call the, the, the new company I was creating. And I was driving to Sunrise one day and I drove by the Malibu Canyon exit on the 101 and I went, Malibu, hmm. Let me see <laughs> that works for me. And then I kept going through all the permutations of why I thought it would work. It was the right okay. place in the alphabet. It had cool letters. It would make a great logo. It's fixed us on the West Coast. But more, one of the most important things, it didn't make weird promises in the name of the company that I couldn't keep. Right. Innovation comics, really? Give me a break. <laughs> Talk about dumb names. Oh, my God. The only comic company I ever really coveted the name of was first comics. I thought first comics was great. It's got exactly the right stuff and it didn't make promises, but it kind of did. So anyway, but I thought Malibu was great for, for all the reasons we just talked about. Now you, you were launching like, so brand new company out of the gate. Tell me about like the, the formative years of Malibu. What's some fun stories about your first months in operation, you know, ground zero at Malibu. Well, ground zero was my wife and I lived in a double wide trailer on recreation and park department land. And in order to live there in exchange for some of our rent, we had to clean the museum next door. (laughs) I love it. And in order for Malibu to get off the ground, we set up Malibu. Me and Tom Mason were in the back porch of that double wide. (laughs) (laughs) And because it was California and because it was a porch, we actually had to go out and get giant sheets of plastic to cover up the windows so we didn't freeze in the winter. (laughs) And we started doing business in January. So California is warm most of the time and you can kind of get away with that. But there's days when it gets down to 40. So we had little space heaters and all that kind of stuff. And we had wildlife. I remember one time Tom sitting at his layout table and an alligator lizard like fell through the skylight onto his drawing board. And one day there was a roof rat in his files and he went to grab something from one of the craters as a rodent (laughs) comes jumping out. And I remember Chris Ulm coming up from his office in LA and sitting at the kitchen table and laying out ads for the buyer's guide and every night i would record david letterman on the vcr and tom and i would we'd come in for lunch he'd make something i'd make something usually pop some stuff with a microwave a hot pocket or some nonsense right and we'd sit there and watch david letterman as as our lunch hour and we were working on these little tiny macintosh computers so we were we ran the entire business from day one until the end with the advantages of macintosh computer we were better computerized than any publisher in the country. Even to the day when Marvel bought us, 
we had a better computer system than, than Marvel did. Wow. And I think that came into play a little bit later when Image came on board because they were all about the computerized coloring and, you know, that bombastic color and different things. So it's, it's made them set apart. But I want to talk a little bit about the titles. And I know Adam did a little bit of investigation on some comics. Ooh, Adam? I feel like I need to sharpen my pencil for the test. What did you So I, I went digging around because I love the back issue bins. That's what I'm there for. We have a comic book store in town. It's all new stuff. I said, you got nothing for me. And so I found this great shop that just started stocking everything. I'm like, yes. And so I'm digging around and I find the first two issues of Protectors. Okay. I, you know, I remember it being promoted in Wizard Magazine. I definitely saw it back in the day. I hadn't read it and I started reading it. I'm like, wow, this is some solid storytelling here. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Were you taking existing Golden Age characters, right? And combining them into a team? We're from Centaur Publishing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they published all this stuff and it had all fallen into the public domain. And so we were trying to breathe new life into that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that was it. So what do you consider like your greatest success from the titles that you had with Malibu? You know, I was a big ferret fan and, you know, I love the protector <laughs> and exiles. Man, I ate that stuff up. I worked at a grocery store and... I, I live in Newfoundland on an island, so distribution is pretty low. We all of a sudden got this blast of Malibu comics, and I mean, it was coming hand over fist and was starting to dominate the rack, and I was like, I'm going to check this out, and I fell in love with that stuff. I'd like to go back for just half a second, if it's okay, and give you a, yeah. a through line that's very cool. Okay, so cool. when I worked at Amazing Heroes, my reviewer of comics was R.A. Jones, and then when we started Malibu, we needed guys who we could trust to produce these comics. So R.A. Jones was the very first author of the very first comic we ever released. And he was with us all the way nice. through until we finished with the protectors. So he wow, was the awesome. whole time. Nice. It was very cool. And he, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. And to this day, he's publishing novels now based on the original Centaur characters, not the Protectors characters. Interesting. You know, we had great stuff that we were successful with. So prior to getting involved with Image, what was your biggest selling title of, of everything you were producing? Because you were, you were bringing in titles from other publishers that had kind of gone out of business also, right? It all gets kind of jumbled. I mean, it's, it was a long time ago. I remember doing very well with Captain Harlock. I mean, it was the first oh. thing that we sold over 30,000 copies of. And so that was a really nice success for us. Robotech 2, The Sentinel, we published that for years and years and years. It's a staple of our, our business. Being able to publish Tarzan was cool. Um, being able to republish Joe Kubert's stuff from Europe, that was great. Oh, we wow. Sergio Argonis's stuff from Europe, that was great. So we hit a lot of doubles. We didn't hit a lot of home runs. Well, Malibu was sort of like, you took in a lot of different companies under your umbrella. So you had Aircell, which was... <laughs> Yeah. What an air air conditioning company in Canada. That, 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 that feels that feels like a misadventure, but yeah, go ahead. Venture Comics, I think, was there. And what was the other one? Eternity. Eternity, yes. There you go. Now, these were all editorial pods, weren't they? They were just brought in in the back shot, were they not? Well, they all had origins outside the company, outside right. Malibu. And then we brought them in and tried to make them imprints. And right. the fact is, we, uh, it all comes back to my responsibility is selling as many copies as I can. So I knew... That if I released, let's say Outlander, we did this miniseries called Outlander, right? That sold better than Men in Black, frankly. But let's say we were talking about Outlander. I knew that if I put the Eternity label on Outlander, more retailers would buy it than if I put the Malibu logo on it. Right. So as soon as we had access to the Eternity imprint, everything was basically Eternity. It was a published by Eternity Comics, a division of Malibu Comics, and little tiny letters somewhere, right? <laughs> the Malibu well done. kind of thing kind of disappeared for a while. And then... 
as the industry started to shake out and the really strong players even started to die, right? The guys that were contemporaries of ours, as things got tougher, they were like, you know what? This isn't easy anymore. It was never really easy, but you had it easy because you were publishing Dale Keown comics or whatever, right? So they would come to us and we would make a deal with them to absorb some of their titles and absorb some of their imprints. So we got Air Cell from Ken Campbell, who was in Canada, and he was getting all these newbie Canadian guys who wanted to do their titles with him because he was local and they'd been rejected everywhere, everywhere else, right? Some of that stuff we didn't even see. They didn't even send it to us, but whatever. And then <laughs> Steve Milo at American Distribution on the East Coast started Adventure Comics. And I don't know if you remember, but The Adventurers was huge. Really? They sold 100,000 copies of something like that of Adventurers number one in black and white. I mean, it is crazy stuff like that. And so when Steve got tired of publishing, then we absorbed Adventure as well. And then we fumbled around the entire history of the company trying to figure out exactly how to brand each imprint so that the imprints would mean something to retailers so that would help with racking and help with sales and all that stuff. And the worst thing is we would change our mind all the time about what was what and how it aligned. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting talking about imprints, right? Because that ultimately became this lightning rod, continued success for you. Because as we mentioned up in your introduction, you became a pivotal part of reshaping the landscape of comics in the 90s when Malibu became the original publisher of Image Comics. Now, Rob Liefeld has said on his podcast, he initially came to you wanting to publish his own team book away from Marvel. That led to some controversy at Marvel. There were some issues there that he didn't anticipate for some reason. This is my memory of it. I'm not vouching for it. Okay. Um, I have a really bad memory. Just saying, guys. Sorry. <laughs> if memory serves when Rob produced his ad for Exterminators. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we did the layouts at Malibu and said it to the buyer's guide on Rob's behalf is my memory of how that went down. Even though Rob was going to own it, we knew Rob on a book was going to be money. So we wanted to do whatever we could to create and foster his desire to work. Now, with what us. was your takeaway from that initial meeting with Rob, as far as what he was proposing for characters and titles and was the image banner already in play? Like what was he presenting to you and saying, I want to do this. And how did that relationship even come together? We originally saw young blood concept drawings from Rob in 1987 four years before oh, wow. it ever launched. And Rob did a lot of guest covers for us. So we were always kind of in touch with Rob and we were happy to see him take off. I mean, we offered Jim Lee his first professional contract, but by the time he got the contract, he'd been snapped up. And Rob was always full of ideas and stuff. But the first thing that we wanted to do to like test the waters, because he wanted to tiptoe a little bit and we didn't know what we were getting our, ourselves into necessarily. We wanted to do an art of Rob Liefeld book. We thought we could sell a ton of those. Oh, wow. Right. But I didn't think just calling the book the art of Rob Liefeld was enough. So I pitched to Rob that we should call it Extreme, the art yes. of Rob Liefeld, right? And we were more than halfway through the production of that thing before it fell apart in 91. So what were you doing with that? Were you licensing like material from other companies that he did, like DC, Marvel? Look at Chris nailing the problem right <laughs> off the gate. That's exactly the problem. That's why it fell apart was Rob wanted to use more art from Marvel and DC oh. in his book that Marvel and DC wanted to let him use. And all of the other art would have been nice, but he wasn't really Rob Liefeld at the time. He was just Rob Liefeld. So we knew that we had to have some of that art in there. And then it got down to lawyers about how, what percentage of the book can be fair use, what can't. And by the time we sorted it all out, Rob was bored and moved on to something else. 
Uh, (laughs) As it seems to be the case often, yes. (laughs) So you guys got lots of umbrellas under you. You know, you've got your your air cell, your all this stuff. Suddenly, Marvel Comics seems like it's in, in jeopardy. So it's fractured. All of their artists literally want to leave. And they're come, they're landing on your doorstep with an well, option here. So, you know, what what is the reaction when you realize, wait a second, we're now going to be marketing books with like Larzen, with uh, Silvestri, with Lee, Portacio, McFarlane, like potentially you had the biggest artist, the hottest creators anyway, right on your doorstep. What was the reaction? Well, the guild came off the lily pretty fast. Um, <laughs> basically, I knew Rob and. Jim and Jim. And I mean, I knew they were all talking and Rob just kept being very vague, which was the right thing to do, frankly. I mean, he vague was the right approach at that point. And then he said he calls up one day and he goes, it's going down in New York City. If you want to be part of it, you need to be there. And so Tom and Chris and I went and bought tickets and flew to New York. (laughs) We we met with them at breakfast. They said, we're going to go tell Marvel and DC what's happening. And even at that point, and I'm sure you can read it in the other historical records, Todd had one agenda and Rob and Jim had a different agenda. And the yeah. other guys had different, they, all, they always had different agendas. All of them, always, right? Well, here, herein lies the biggest flaw with Image. You know, you, you weren't, you know, bringing in a company. You were bringing in separate artists and separate entities and separate studios under the auspices of Image Comics, we'll say. Right, but none I mean? of that was clear at that point, right? right? They just said, come to New York. We're going to go to Marvel and DC and we're going to tell them we're leaving and come back and meet us for dinner after it's over. We went to the movies. We come back that night. They said, we just told Marvel and DC that we quit. And, you know, Jim Lee was pale as a ghost Um, and they said okay we're gonna meet again for breakfast the next day you guys go back to your hotel room come up with a proposal for malibu comics to publish image comics as an imprint there was no discussion about how they were going to make things work right it was just like we're leaving we want to publish comics we want to make money publishing comics malibu's got the infrastructure tell us how you think it should work Right. So we go back to our hotel room and we're up all night trying to come up with a, a proposal. And our proposal was very much like the creator owned proposals that you would see back in the day that it's not like image invented creator owned comics. My goodness. Right. Yeah, Reach and Eclipse and all these guys had well-established creator-owned deals. So ours is similar to that in a lot of ways. So we go downstairs with our proposal. Todd stands up and says, all right, here's the deal. Take it or leave it. You get a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. We're going to take all the money. You still want to do it. <laughs> oh, wow. All of our work went right out the window. They were they just gave us a take it or leave it offer. And they said, go back home and talk about it amongst yourselves and tell us. And of course, we flew back to California and told them as soon as we got off the plane that the answer was still yes. But we came down on this unavoidable fact. We had two choices. We could either do it or we could compete with it. Right. Were you afraid at the time that image was going to cannibalize your own sales? Like, were you no. your, your own? No, no. Cause I mean, we were already competing with Marvel and DC and yeah, yeah. all these other companies. So no, that wasn't, that was a particular concern. Whatever our books were selling, they were probably going to continue to sell. Nobody was going to stop buying Sherlock Holmes reprints <laughs> by Frank Giacoya because they wanted their Rob Liefeld book. Instead. <laughs> That's not really the way fandom works, right, Chris? <laughs> so I heard that they weren't super interested in, you know, splashing the Malibu logo over their books. We'll oh, say, they wanted know? nothing to do with us. We became pariahs <laughs> in a hurry. So how did that affect your relationship? Is it like ultimately it just comes down to the money's going to come in? Like what was the attitude as you're trying to get this done for them? Well, two things. 
one, we wanted to be as useful and helpful as they wanted. Like with all our creators, if we could, we wanted to give them what they wanted. As long as the money deal was going to work for us, we had the infrastructure. We wanted to give them what they wanted. If they want us to step aside, we'll step aside. The problem was when they made this giant splash, there was nobody to call. And all the media wanted a place to call, right? If you have a giant press release about this giant event that's happened, there's always somebody that you can call to get more information so that you can run your story, right? Not with image. We were the only contact people and they didn't want us to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. So this is the, you know, the way it goes, obviously, is that Youngblood is the book that comes out first. That's only because of, it was further along in the production. Right, exactly. That's kind of my question is who was ready and who was not ready? Because the space between the announcement and the actual release of the books is, is stuff of legend, right? Like, well, you, like, can, you, can, you can tell who was ready and who wasn't based on which book <laughs> come out when. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty easy to suss out those guys were trying to turn that with their drawings into cash as quickly as they could so for you what really was the first indication that this image launch was going to be a success well we always knew it was going to be the biggest thing we ever touched that was pretty clear from seconds after we made the deal and one of the reasons we went do we do the deal or we compete with the deal well there was no way we wanted to compete with this deal no way. So it was pretty clear it was going to be pretty big from the beginning. The degree of how big it was going to be was the thing that surprised everybody for sure. So there was two incidents. One, I had a rush order of some Spawn t-shirts that I gave away at a Comics Hawaii show for retailers, a trade show. And that was chaos. And then obviously, when we solicited Youngblood and we got a number that was outrageous. I mean, it was outrageous. And then we found out Rob was going to be late and we told the distributors, they said, oh, good. We could increase our order. Whoa. Whoa that's so crazy. Creator Benefits to lateness. Whoa. Yeah. Retailers and distributors never increased their orders on a late book. That's certainly up, that I'd ever experienced up to that point. I'd never even heard of it happening. And with Rob, Youngblood got pushed back two or three times on its release date. And every time it got pushed back, the orders went up. Now, I got to ask you this question. We are a, you know, a wizard magazine history podcast. Yes. So, so often, you know, at least in people's memory, everything they say is image and wizard, image and wizard. Wizard was all about promoting image. That's all it was. That's all they cared about in those pages. And that's why image became a big deal. Obviously, that's not why image became a big deal. But what part do you feel if any at all, did this fledgling fanzine Wizard Magazine play in giving Image the boost in the in you know in a higher profile in those early days? Well, it very it seemed very symbiotic, right? They kept ramping it up, and every time Wizard would push it more, then Image would be more, and then because Image was more, then it was more valuable to Wizard, and just it just kept building on itself. So it felt like Wizard was kind of the bellows, giving the fire more air. Is how right. is how I would look at it. And what was your general opinion? Again, having come from this world of reading, you know, the comics journalism that preceded yep. it and then participating, what did you feel about Wizard Magazine? I wasn't a big fan, but that's because the initial years of Wizard Magazine were primarily about the price guide and the like who's right. hot, who's not. First of all, until Image came along, Malibu was never big enough for them to care. Yeah. Right. So any relationship we had up to that point was pay or play. If you want any of coverage, you got to give us a crap load of money for advertising. All right. Well, we're on a strict budget because we want to stay alive. We're not going to use it on Wizard Magazine because we didn't think we could get the proper amount of return. Right. 
that's kind of where we were until we launched the Ultraverse. And then it got to the point where we could afford to spend more money. We had more money in the budgets and some of that money went to Wizard. And then we got a small amount of coverage. Malibu and Wizard, it was very much pay for play. Ah, so we always we there. always wondered that. I'm not sure they ever said it out loud, but it was pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of that, so despite the fact that Image broke away from Malibu to just set up their own publishing entity, which was clear before we rolled Young Blood off the press the first time, that was always ah. the plan. Then, okay. Well, it, we knew because they clearly, if they didn't want us involved, they were going to want us less involved going forward, right? But ultimately. Do you consider that was a valuable partnership for oh, whatever yeah. period of time you had them? Okay. Absolutely. Even with the terrible profit split, I mean, and it was God awful. The sales were so huge that we still did fine. I guess, Dave, my next question is going to be, so we got to see what Malibu is going to look like post image. We started playing for that right away. Okay, so so that's I guess is the is the genesis of of the Ultraverse because that's before right. that you were a bunch of like I, I guess to say you you didn't really own anything so you know the IPs were you know your Robotech your Planet of the Apes all the different things if you were trying to cash checks off the name Malibu a lot of these things are often different uh, different IPs is that would that be a fair thing to say Yeah yeah I mean we had some contractual advantages that were given to us for a time period that increased the value of the company, but there was not a lot of IP that was company owned. That's true. Right. Right. So building a new universe, obviously, is the next big play. And is it true that the Ultraverse was originally called the Megaverse or some? Yes, some that is that? Exactly, that's exactly oh. true. We thought Megaverse was a great name. And then we got a cease and desist order from somebody else. And then we had a meeting where everybody had notebooks full of alternative names and Ultraverse was the best one. And now it's hard to think of it as anything else. Oh, the Ultraverse kicks a lot of ass. I'm telling you right now. Thank so you. you. So you guys are you decide you're going to create your own universe. So walk us through what goes into that. What was the planning stages, character development? Let us know what the founding layer, the bricks and mortar of creating the Ultraverse, what did, what did that entail? Well, because of what happened with Image, it was pretty clear that the market wanted to see creator buy-in, right? Oh, yeah. So we couldn't come out and go, we're doing a whole bunch of titles. And aren't you glad Malibu's doing this because Malibu's this and Malibu's that? <laughs> no, nobody, nobody cared, right? So it was pretty clear that we had to get some creator buy-in. And so we built contracts that were very similar to DC and Marvel's profit participation contracts where, I mean, there was some expansion in certain areas and certain other additional benefits, but they were very traditional in terms of Malibu owns it all. But if we ever exploit it, we have to sign you a check. So we're obligated to send you a check when we sell something that we own. That was the way the contracts were laid out. Part of the problem with creator-owned things and relationship with publishers is, let's say I get a call from a company that wants to give us $50,000 to make Nightman toilet paper. Yes. But Steve Engelhart <laughs> owns it. And he goes, oh. I don't want my creator associated with toilet paper. Well, now <laughs> I have to tell some guy in the mailroom that he can't have a raise because Steve Engelhart doesn't want Nightman toilet paper. Gotcha. So right. creator ownership can be a problem when it comes to that kind of thing. Now, God bless them. I think they should get whatever they want on the stuff that they own. That's not the deal we made. That's not the deal they made. And so we just wanted to say, if we want to make Nightman toilet paper, we're going to make Nightman toilet paper, but we're going to send you a check. 
Well, and I'm curious for you, Dave, the way it was presented, at least in the coverage in Wizard Magazine, is there was this great story conference with all these creators. Chris Ulm is like your editor-in-chief of this Ultraverse idea. So where were you in all of that process, like creatively? Did you try to present anything or were you just like, let's make it happen, guys? Yeah, I got got to contribute creatively. First of all, I was one of the the original creators on The Exiles. So that was, that's a separate, weird, like mutant story that, (laughs) you know, we don't necessarily necessarily need to go into today, but it's all over the internet if you want to figure it out. But in terms of my creative contribution, I got to go to the conference and I got to sit in the room and contribute as much creatively as I wanted to as one of the founding fathers. So I remember one thing distinctly where four of us or five of us broke off into a group to come up with the finer points of what the character prime was going to be like, and then report back to the group. And then we, because we picked out three or four of our favorite kinds of things that we thought had the most promise. And then we broke into these little committees and then we came back. Right. And so the whole idea of Kevin coming up with prime's body out of his imagination and having him evaporate into a big pile of goo. That was oh, me. Nice. <laughs> and I came up with the name freaks. Uh, so I was able to contribute a little bit, not a lot. And it was all a big mash, right? We just, just started, kept throwing ideas into the cauldron and we ended up with the Ultraverse. And the other thing I have to ask you about, because in the early days of Wizard Magazine, the first ads for the Ultraverse were so abstract. There were these (laughs) holdout, there was Cro-Magnon Man and Pyramids and Stonehenge. And I'm just like, I don't know what they're trying to tell me. Is this a superhero universe? What is this? So, because you came from a marketing background. Was that you? (laughs) This is is the curse that you're going to have to live with for the rest of the day, Adam. I have no memory of any of that. Okay. I think it came down to we've got a deadline to get an ad to Wizard. Do we have any art we we can send them? Oh, we don't? Okay. Let's figure out something else we can send them then. (laughs) Do you remember specifically, you know, just getting back to Wizard? Probably not, but because you have (laughs) there were half issues. There were lots of inserts with like for special mail-away offers in the magazine and stuff like like you said, at this point, you're becoming more of a major player. They want to get on the ground floor now for another big company that's launching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, were, they were very much in Images wheelhouse. Certainly, they had a, an amazing relationship with Valiant. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if they saw that the Ultraverse had the potential to be that next thing that would make people pick up Wizard Magazine and, and make their circulation and ads work more money and all that stuff, I guess I guess I'm grateful. Okay, so, so Wizard was hyping up some stuff. But Chris, I think you have a question here about maybe what was going on in the Malibu and Ultraverse offices there. Yeah, so I mean, we're publishing all these titles. You had Prime, you had Hard Case, Strangers, Firearm, Rune, Exiles, Freaks. All this stuff is just hitting at once. And I, I remember my rack that i used to have you know i'd get my marvels then i would get my dc and then i had my malibu you know i was getting my ferret now all of a sudden the rack is exploding like this thing is tipping over so you guys met at a conference you organized all this stuff well there was two two important conferences right okay the editorial conference where we figured out what the editorial was going to be and how we were going to build the bible the second and probably more important conference was the sales conference we had in westlake after we had it all together we flew in wizard we flew in the buyer's guide we flew in all the journalists we flew in Ah. all distributors we flew in major retailers and we all got them all together just before we're going to solidify all of our marketing so that they could have a buy-in for what the launch was going to be like. So they actually got to give us feedback before 
we made a lot of our marketing and, and advertising plans. And that was maybe the most important thing we did. Yeah. Speaking of which, just the multimedia marketing campaign that you guys came up, you had live action VHS packaged with a comic, you know, yep. you trailers for hard case, you know, that were like in oh, videos yeah. that people could win in contests, TV commercials that were totally like MTV style, video games, CD-ROM comics before really anybody was doing that on a major scale, and eventually the action figures. So how involved were you in coming up with those particular promotional ideas? Like, did you have a favorite? We're like, guys, we should do this. And you were pushing for it. It was very much a team effort at that point. And there was so much stuff that we were doing. But Tom and I, Tom was here uh, a couple days ago and we were talking about this interview and we were talking about how almost all of the really great Ultraverse ideas were a stew. Like somebody yeah. would throw in a little piece about this. We'd throw in a little piece about that and then we'd stir it up and then we'd sort it out. It was just trying to figure out something that other people hadn't done or take something they had done and like turn it 90 degrees or something just to try to keep the interest level up because the competition was fierce. Oh, yes. So getting people to notice you at all was really yeah, hard. 1993, the explosion. Yeah. So you you had to do kind of outrageous stuff to stand out. Oh, man. So was there anyone that, you know, you were super excited to launch? And as well, a second part of that question was, was there anything that didn't make the cut? Was there anything that you were excited about that you were talking about and just ended up on the editing room floor and never, ever saw the light of day? Well, the 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 Bible's full of all sorts of stuff that didn't make the cut. I mean, dozens of characters. And if you want to see some of those characters, all you got to do is pick up the trading card sets. Oh, so a lot of the characters that never really saw the light of day in the comics or didn't have much visibility or were part of the card sets. Oh, that's neat. Okay. So there's a lot of, a lot of lost characters in there, but I didn't really have any favorites. I just wanted to, I just wanted them to be successful. Uh, certainly I became a big fan of prime as soon as, as soon as Norm came on board. Was yes. that your number one selling title? Was that the biggest one of all for the Ultraverse? In terms well, of they, Prime sold just a smidge more than Hardcase and The Strangers at launch, but it's, it held up better, mostly because I think of the consistency with the art. And then right. obviously The Strangers was second because Holberg was on the book almost the whole time. And listen, like every great concept, of course, comes the end. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> 1995, good old Marvel rolls in. Now yep. they come and they go, we love this Ultraverse, or this, this, this competitor. We would love to own this. Boom. Buys it lock, stock and barrel. You know, it seemed like a great idea at the time. My God, all the crossovers you'd get, you know. Yeah, we did. We did. We did a bunch of those. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those happened out of the gate. Then suddenly it was like, poof. The Ultraverse was gone out of the ether. And listen, yep. these characters, it's a shame that they're sitting on the shelf somewhere because to me, this is still money in the bank. Like, you know, you're, you're talking about another era of comic books that is coming out. And certainly Ultraverse seems to have a place in that because to me, you know, that 90s, um, you know, nostalgic cachet is back. And I think that, you know, Ultraverse could come back at any point and I think would sell some magazines. What do you think? Nobody wants that stuff to come back more than I do. And <laughs> I can tell you, here's all it would take. There are hurdles that I don't know the specifics on. I have my theories, but all it would take is a James Gunn or a Christopher Nolan or one of those guys, Sam Raimi, anybody that's bank in terms of Marvel's perception of what the movie universe is to come to them and say, you know what? I really want to make it this Freaks movie. I saw this Freaks comic. I understand Marvel owns it. 
I want to make it. And if that happened or anything similar to that would happen, that would be enough for them to figure out and sort out any any hurdles that were in the way. Well, Dave, I'm telling you, there's got to be somebody out there who is a fan of the Nightman television series. And they say, that's the guy. I'm not sure. I, you know, Adam, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure there's any actual fans of the Nightman TV show. That's oh, nice man. to say, but I'm not sure that's true. Now, oh, Dave, I, I want though. the toilet oh. paper. I want the come on. Yeah, there you go. Let, let me ask you this. Though. The question we have is the way it was reported initially was yep. that Marvel was buying Malibu because you guys had an amazing coloring team, and they <laughs> your digital coloring team. And that's what really we're going to do absorb. this one. OK. Yeah. All right. So if you're talking about the coloring department, the truth is Marvel walked in right after the purchase and tried to shut the coloring department down the next day and wow. send all of the coloring to a company in ireland where i'm sure there were kickbacks going on so that's the truth of it the only thing that saved the malibu coloring department was the marvel editors got a few books that got really drastically behind schedule and our coloring department head guy mike giles who's a great guy and really talented was always saying if you've got something you want us to turn fast give us a chance Give us a chance. Give us a chance. And finally, Mark Grunwald said, oh, my God, I need this book to go out on Monday. He's calling Mike Giles, I believe, on Friday. Mike Giles put it together, a team that worked 24-7 for two days, completed the book, got it to Mark Grunwald on time. And then suddenly they started to see the benefits of the Malibu coloring department. Interesting. But ultimately, was... Malibu's, you know, Ultraverse, were you competition they just needed to eliminate? Were you getting market share they did not want to give up? Or what was, do you think, ultimately the reason? Did they see the creative value of the characters? Why the purchase? Marvel was skating on the top of their press releases. And they had money guys that were trying to unload the company or refinance the company. or They had a lot of high level money stuff that they were trying to deal with. Right. And what they decided was that they weren't going to be able to get the money situation. They sorted out the way they wanted to, to their benefit. If there was a press release that Marvel was the number two comic book company. And the only way to prevent that press release from happening would be for Marvel to buy Malibu. Because if DC buys Malibu, perhaps, and I'm not saying for sure, but perhaps a month or two or three, there would be enough orders on the comic books for Malibu and DC together that we could potentially overtake Marvel in the market share race. And the Marvel money guys couldn't live with that press release ever seeing the light of day. Wow. So was DC in the game? Uh, we, we had a couple of oh, We were that- way down the road with DC. It was, it was close. It was really, really? close. DC, it was owned by Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was doing regular entertainment due diligence, which lawyers and accountants and takes forever, right? Purchasing a company. Marvel, they had a lot less constraints. So we're way down the road. I mean, we're going to conventions and meeting with DC editors about how cool it's going to be for our characters to cross over with their characters and starting to come up with long-term editorial plans and that kind of stuff. That was already in the works. That was well down the road. And then one day I get a call, Dave, it's Terry Stewart on the phone. First of all, the last time I talked to Terry Stewart before that was when he yelled at me to get my image guys in line. Um, so Terry calls me up and I said, hello, Terry, can I help you? And he goes, I understand you're negotiating with DC. Is it a done deal yet? I said, now it's not It's it's not signed yet. Is, is this something that you're interested in? And he says, yes, we'd like to come to the table. I said, well, let me put you on hold. I'll put you in touch with the right person. 
<laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, Terry Stewart reached out to me and Marvel ended up offering much more than Warner Brothers would have offered. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. There were there were so many questions that we had then when they knew that you were coming on the show. Like, there's a lot of Ultraverse love in our in our circle. We'll <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, I, yeah. I, I love it, too. And, and a few people had some deep cuts for you. So you, you ready for a, a well, couple, we can uh, we can try. But my, my, right. my brain is a sieve. So let's remember that part. <laughs> I'll, st- I'll start with one that sticks out to me because it's, okay. it's a really strange, strange question. It's like asking uh, William Shatner about, you know, how come, you know, this prop was used in the background of episode four. But anyway, this one, this one is from Jesse Starcher and Chris Armstrong, and they're wondering about the Street Fighter series. They wanted to know, you know, Street Fighter hit its third issue, hit the shelf in 93. That was the end of the run. The back matter of the issue talked about capcom physically being upset with the adaptation of their game was there any truth to that was it was capcom sure, yeah, the video yeah game? absolutely that's 100 true the reader's digest version of the story is this we got the license to do street fighter comics from capcom usa our contract said you have to get approvals from all the capcom usa people in order to produce a comic just typical for a license right sure we're producing the comic it's their stuff they get to approve it so we got all the approvals, and because it was Street Fighter, we got all of the approvals in writing. Well, what we didn't know was Capcom USA was not getting approvals from Japan. Oh, no. So as soon as we released it and it managed to get into the hands of somebody in Japan, Japan called up Capcom USA, shut down the license. That's how it got killed. But we did everything right. We did everything we were supposed to do. It's just that the people we were licensing it from didn't. And we paid the price. You know, we we had the Ultra Force cartoon that did yep. come out. It hit the air. You know, we got the USA Network. It was in conjunction with the action figures. Like all yeah. of that was happening. Was that after you were no longer involved, or were you directly involved with that? I wasn't involved really yeah. in any way. I mean, I I was involved in as much as all of the staff founding fathers were invited to give feedback on the scripts. Okay, but right. to be frank. I was too busy for that. We had other stuff to do, including Bravura, right? So, you know, my job responsibilities didn't allow me to read animation scripts and give feedback. But did you ultimately watch the finished product? Did it come out in an acceptable format as far as you were concerned? Please. I was thrilled that it existed at all. I mean, I create, I helped create a, a, a universe that, that ended up getting its own cartoon show on TV. Literally, where's the downside? There's I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess none. it could have been better, but I, I really wasn't in control of the the. Of the of the quality of it wasn't my job and i didn't know anything about creating a quality cartoon so yeah and i will tell you every time we post something about those action figures or the cartoons so many people come on they're like underrated so great people didn't give it a chance at the time it is quality stuff and it really is the figures yeah. are great and the yeah, show Gloop did a really nice job with the figures that's for sure i love patriotic prime that's one of my favorite ones <laughs> yeah so many prime variants yeah, yeah for sure so you guys were known for being like um, a writer-driven company, the Ultraverse itself. It was like a writer-driven imprint. It was a marketing decision, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In- instead of image focusing on the artist, and boy, did they focus on the artist. And you could tell that it was an artist-focused product. <laughs> that's how. That's how I'll leave that. But uh, was there any thought to a crossover with another company that would share a similar vibe, which was Valiant? Was there any overtures made that way? They were East Coast. We were West Coast. And we were too busy competing with them. I'm friends with Fred Pierce and have been for a really, really long time. But 
you know, the whole East Coast thing was very different than what was going on the West Coast. And the never and and it was a really short time period, if you think about it. I mean, the ultras right, only absolutely. lasted for lasted less than two years. So there wasn't a lot of time to fit in on a lot of that other stuff. Yeah. Summer of 93 to summer of 94. And then from summer of 94 to summer of 95, by the time you get to the end of 95, there's not much left. So somebody uh, online also had a question here uh, yep. about Steve Gerber. They just wanted to know, what was it like <laughs> working with Steve Gerber? He's such a force. He's got a, a history. And, and so what, what did you think about his output for the Ultraverse? I love Steve Gerber. I always loved Steve Gerber. Great to hang out with. He did have undiagnosed medical issue, which I think strangely affected his work positively. But if <laughs> you guys, are you guys aware of this? Ah, I don't think so. Well, first of all, let me give you the interesting piece of the puzzle I just learned, which was I saw an interview on the on the internet where it said that Steve was hired to work at Marvel as an assistant editor. They liked him, but they eventually let him go and, and decided to just use him as a writer because he couldn't stay awake at his desk. <laughs> what we found out later after he's been working on the Ultraverse, like all these years, right, from Marvel, he was falling asleep at his desk to decades later where he's working for the Ultraverse, right? For all that time, he had undiagnosed sleep apnea. Steve Gerber had not slept through the night in like 30 years. So think about that for a second in terms of what that would do to you mentally. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, good. It would, it would definitely affect your creativity, but it would also affect all sorts of other things kind of negatively. Right. So I love Steve Gerber. I thought he was a great guy. Um, he did really struggle making deadlines or coming up with ideas for the verse. I think that's well documented, but there's nobody that loves Steve Gerber more. Um, at a recent Eisner Awards, I was sitting up front with his daughter. And at the end of the ceremony, I went to tell her how much he meant to me. And I just broke down. I just started uh, crying because Steve meant so much to me. And then I got to be his friend. And that was amazing. That's awesome. That is awesome. Now, uh, one last thing here. Just the, the question is kind of, you know, like you said, the Ultraverse was short-lived and that was kind of this big, exciting thing. And then it you know, was taken away, essentially, that eventually in a vault somewhere, uh, hopefully <laughs> maybe someday, like you say, James Gunn, make it happen. But yep. for you, was there something that you can imagine would have happened if it continued on? Like, did you see or would you imagine it would have had a life five years down the line? Could it have evolved or with, again, kind of that after that glut of new publishers in 93, do you think it would have faded or maybe not have survived? What is your thought process on that? My thought process was we couldn't go in reverse fast enough to keep up with the falling market. Yeah. And that's why we ended up in the position we were in. We were we had so much forward momentum that when the momentum of the industry basically turned against us, we couldn't adjust fast enough. It was sort of inevitable. I mean, you got to realize it wasn't, what was it, six months after Marvel bought Malibu, declared bankruptcy or something like that. Yeah. So we weren't alone. Everybody, everybody got affected, right? I mean, there are not too many companies that can say they successfully were able to sell their company when things turn south. Right. That's a win. Just Malibu and Valiant. Even if you try to put CrossGen in there, selling to, to disney it's not the same no because <laughs> you know, i'm sure i'm moment, sure they got right. pennies on the dollar for that and <laughs> i think I, I think valiant and and malibu got a much better deal wildstorm probably got a pretty good deal but out of the hundreds of companies that have competed with marvel and dc over the years only three or four actually got sold and what was ultimately then your involvement with comics in the years that followed and to this point then what connection did you have what were you 
involved in. I've been to San Diego Con every year since 1985. So there's that. I've been to San Diego Con the every fandom year. fandom continues. Yeah, I've always been a fan. I, I, I've got a pile of comics right there that are sitting <laughs> unread that I just bought the other day. But after Malibu, I worked as an agent for a while. I was Mark Wade's representative when he did Kingdom Come. Wow. Oh, yeah. That? I helped Brian Augustine and, and Umberto Ramos get their Crimson thing launched. Um, I had little bits and pieces of like the art of comic book inking. I walked that through the process to get Dark Horse to publish the Gary Martin inking book. So I had little bits and pieces of stuff I was doing um, as an agent. And then I got a job as the director of publishing at Humanoids. I did that for right around the year 2000. And then I was out of the business basically and then just recently i started geek view tavern um and it's it's a gas it's really it's it's really fun and i like to drag my friends and cohorts onto it and we just have fun i mean it's, we, we've did a three-part ultraverse thing about the, the best covers of the ultraverse really good we've done stuff about newspaper strips we've done stuff about returning jack kirby's artwork we've done the defenders we've done comparing the movies and the shang chi comics so yeah we're having a guess that's wonderful and i, I have one more bonus question here yep because you lived through the fervor of the <laughs> something we're never going to see again i just don't think that that could be a compliment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What was the most outrageous just 90s comic book boom thing that you experienced, whether it was an event or just maybe a production that came through where you're like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Like, what was the most 90s thing in your mind? <laughs> Rob Liefeld standing on top of a table at Comic-Con starting a riot because he's throwing swag to people, right? <laughs> made San Diego kind of create new rules about that stuff. All right. Well, so if people want to find your show on YouTube, just type to- in Geek View Tavern. Obviously, the tavern part's important. Uh, Geek View Tavern is, is is where I'm primarily hanging my hat now. And then what is on your pile right now? Just a recommendation as we go out here for the stuff you're picking up. What do you think is happening in the world of comics now that is exciting? You know, I'm, I'm just an old geezer. I like old school stuff. I like compressed stories. I don't like expanded the expanded storytelling right very much. Um, That's the right answer, Dave. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Brubaker fan. I bought the first Reckless book. I've got the second reckless book right there i liked the new she hulk i thought that felt pretty good yeah it's wow I'm, I'm enjoying it so yeah so i thought i thought rainbow was doing a really nice job of being able to feel new but also know what makes a good comic from the old like yes mixing traditional and new storytelling so i thought that was pretty good well, awesome. Well, Dave, we want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing what memories you, you could pull out of the ether, right? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, your enthusiasm is fantastic. I'm so glad you guys asked me. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you, sir. Listen, I, I put you through some trials to get here, Dave, and I really appreciate it. I was happy to do it. And that does it for this edition of The Wizard Files. We want to thank you so much for joining us for this special interview. Of course, for Dave joining us as the man of the hour and Chris Bailey for setting the whole thing up. You can find Dave at Geek View Tavern on YouTube. Check out his show, get even more stories from the early days, from the 90s, and just from these comic book fan veterans, right? They have been reading longer than any of us, most likely, and they surely have a lot to share. Check out the Superblog team-up event that is going on over with Chris Bailey. Again, he's at Charlton underscore hero if you want to follow all the excitement there as they are exploring the launch of Image Comics this summer, giving you all the details, some of which you may have forgotten. So definitely worth giving that a listen. Of course, you can stay connected with us 
us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Find our YouTube page, Wizards Podcast, where we have a whole lot going on on the channel. Weekly haul videos, whether they're 90s comics or wizard posters or any number of wizard items being added to the archives here as we continue to strive to bring you the greatest coverage. Of course, if this is your first time checking out the show, we do a main episode every other week where we are covering an issue of Wizard Magazine in chronological order. We go in-depth into the details of comics history as presented in those pages at the time. Then we have a mini-episode the following week that gets into all the details we didn't have time for and discussing all the excitement and the hype of that era. So we certainly encourage you to stay connected to the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. And until next time, we're closing the files.